Jesus, I thank you so much for this snow, even though it kind of made a mess of some things. Uh, Lord, you are in charge of the weather. You're in charge of even the earthquakes that are happening around the world over the last couple of days. Lord, you are mighty and powerful. And uh, Lord, I thank you so much that at church, we can hear about your loving kindness, your grace, and your word, your, your revelation to us. Lord, it's not just your power that we need to know about. It's not just your, your uh, glory, but it's your grace also. And that only comes as we study the word of God. We need your word so much. And Lord, I pray that you would give us spiritual ears to hear and eyes to see what you would have for us, Jesus. Use a foolish mouth like mine uh, to just present your truths in, in whatever way you would have, Lord. I thank you for um, using me even though I don't deserve it. I thank you for loving each one of us and saving us, washing our sins and giving us gifts from your, from your very spirit. We thank you so much. We need you in this place. In your name we pray, amen. amen. So today we're going to study the church at Pergamos, the letter to the church of Pergamos. And this, the sermon title is called Cheating on Jesus cheating on Jesus. Now, the first two letters we studied, it was Ephesus, and what was their big thing? They were missing what? Love. They were really good in doctrine, but when it came to love, there was just something missing. And, and the big lesson in that was don't think that you're above repenting when you get off a little bit. When you get off, just run back in repentance to Jesus. And then last week, we studied the church of where? Smyrna, which is the Greek word for myrrh, and we learned how that church was the persecuted church, the church that was going under some really hard times, but they weren't afraid of that, and Jesus warned them and told them that more hard times were coming, but it glorified him, and, and we learned that when we are broken, when we are crushed like myrrh is crushed, that a pleasant smell comes out of our lives, out of our spirit unto God. He loves the smell of you being crushed. Not because he's mean, but because it's real. What he has planted inside you is real. And we have to be broken in order for that odor to come out. His Holy Spirit comes out of us when we are broken, when we are crushed, when we have gone through the most difficult times in our life. That's when the Lord really smells that fragrance and other people. We learned about that. So now we get to the, uh, the third letter. Did you know that a large majority of men in the United States, both married and single, say they would not have an affair? Isn't that interesting? Uh, even if they're, uh, they were certain their loved one would never find out. There was this Gallup poll that uh, happened uh, recently, and it says, uh, uh, actually, it's not that recently, 1992. I went way back for this poll. So... They, they polled 500 men and 67% of married men and 60% of unmarried men said that an affair is absolutely out of the question. Huh. Only 5% of married men and 11% of unmarried men said they would do it. The rest said maybe, depending on if they're cheating up. Also, 95% of married men said they wouldn't drop their partner for a trophy wife if they became a, uh, extremely wealthy or successful. 95% said they would stay committed to their current wife, even if they won the lottery, got some hair transplant, were good to go. 
So yes, 1992 is when that was. I, I don't think it's changed that much. I mean, our culture is changing, becoming more liberal and free with stuff. But um, even, even so, our world, even our world is not very accepting of cheating and affairs. It's always the bad guy in the movie that has an affair, right? All right. Yet there seems to be uh, this spiritual acceptance of cheating on Jesus. Jesus is called the bridegroom in Scripture, and we are his bride. That's how it's described. This relationship is just like a marriage. In fact, when you get married, it's all about Jesus. Because when you get married, it's a picture of the relationship Jesus has with his church. The commitment, the love, the supplying and meeting each other's needs. It's, it's really wonderful. So our question today is, are you cheating on Jesus? Am I cheating on Jesus? Are we cheating on Jesus? I hope not. But let's be open if the Holy Spirit were to convict us. In Revelation chapter 2, we begin in verse 12. It says, to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So we're, we're looking now at this church in Pergamos. And as we've been looking at these, four, uh, these seven churches, we've seen that there's four different in applications to the information that we receive. First, do you guys have the list in front of you? What's the first one? Local application. That means there's an application to that church in that day that John was writing to. John was kind of like the overseer of all these churches in Asia Minor. He had planted a few of them. He had trained up the pastors. And this was a real church with real problems. Okay, what's the second one? Ecclesiastical. That means there's an application for this letter, not just for that church, but for all churches, including our church. We can glean application from this. Then there is personal that means for you, personally, you can read this letter and be changed, affected, and convicted, and repent. And then, what's the fourth? Prophetical, or for us, it's actually historical. These seven letters speak of seven periods or times in church history. The first one was that apostolic church, that first church that was really into doctrine, but kind of lost their first love. Then you had the persecuted church that went from 100 AD to about 313 AD. 
And that was when he said there would be 10 days of persecution, which turned out to be 10 different waves of persecution started by 10 different Roman empire emperors who each had their own little variation of how they persecuted Christians. And over 5 million Christians were killed during that time. Well, the time we're going to study now is the next time period, which would be from 313 till about five or 600. I haven't determined exactly where the end of this time period would be. It kind of morphs into our next one we're going to study next week, which is the Catholic Church. But today we are in this period of Pergamos, and I'm going to explain that in just a minute. Uh, Pergamos, I got a picture actually of Pergamos today. It's the one with the, looks like a stairs picture. That, nope, the other one. Don't look at that one. Shh, don't look. You, you didn't see that. Okay, this one here, this is actually right outside the, uh, the, the city, the new city called Bergamos, Bergamos or something. But Pergamos, this was the, the, the place where they would have their big uh, worship ceremonies and different things there. The city was noted for its culture and education, having one of the greatest libraries in all the ancient world with more than 200,000 books. These people were smart. They were educated because they had this big library. They had degrees and they were sophisticated. All right. Pergamos was extremely also religious city. It had temples to Greek and Roman gods like Dionysus, Athena, Demeter, and Zeus, a big one to Zeus. They actually believed Zeus was born there in Pergamos. And they had three temples dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor. Remember last week, we saw that they worshiped Roma, the idea of Rome. Well, this city took that to the next level. They had three different temples where you could go worship specific Roman emperors. So they mixed. So you see in what we're seeing here is the city's really smart, but they're really religious. And they love to mix the two. They love to mix brainy things with religious things. And they like to, to plug them in together. They wanted to be spiritual and intellectual. And I'm not saying this is bad for, like, in general, to be smart about your faith. But we're, we're seeing they like to mix things. This is all, just already in our story, we're seeing that they like to mix things. There was a, a god that they worshipped named Asc. Asclepios, A-S-C-L-E-P-I-O-S. Don't know how to say what? Asclepios. This guy. <laughs> he's, a, he's a prime example of what they're talking about. He was a god of healing and knowledge. Okay, so they, he's a god, so this religious thing of healing and knowledge. And his temple was actually kind of like a medical school that they had here in the city. And... Uh, uh, so what would happen is people who were sick were allowed to come in and spend the night in the darkness of the temple. And in the temple, they, they would have snakes crawling around. And this was their idea of being smart. They would have the snakes sleep with the people and slither over them. And if a snake slithered over you, that was considered the way that you would be healed. Now, they thought these were tame and harmless snakes, which no snake is tame and harmless, are they? They're all messengers of Satan, right? <laughs> but they thought that these snakes were like these tame, har harmless snakes, and they would glide over the ground, and, and if it touched you, it was the same as this God himself touching you. A God related to a snake, oh. Makes sense, right? 
And the touch was supposed to bring health and healing. All right? So that was just an example of how they thought they were being smart, but they're really religious and they kind of are trying to mix it and it doesn't seem like it was really working. And really, this is the most important city in all the cities we're going to study uh, in Asia Minor during that time because it was the capital. And it had been the capital for 300 years. And they loved being the capital. They were proud of their Caesars. They were like super into their Caesars. They were always kissing up to their Caesars all the time. I have a picture of what this looked like. Nope, other one. Right there. So they loved, they loved their Caesars. They loved being like the place... And the Caesars loved going to this city also because they were really popular every time they showed up. They'd go and they would wave. Look at just how happy she is. Look at all these people that love me. Oh, my gosh. That's exactly how the Caesars thought of this city. Pergamos. Pergamos loved their Caesars, all right? But Pergamos means an unacceptable marriage. That's what the word per means unacceptable or inappropriate. We get our word pervert from that word. And gamos is the word for marriage. Monogamy, gamos, okay? So an unacceptable marriage. You have to know when you think of pergamos that it means an unacceptable marriage, an unacceptable mixing, an unacceptable joining together, inappropriate what they're doing. Well, the persecutions of Smyrna, remember the the church before, they stopped in 313 because something very, very important happened in 313. Does anyone know what it is? In 313, a year, very, very important, probably the most important year in church history. Constantine, Kevin, you're a gentleman and a scholar. Constantine became the emperor of, of Rome in 313, or 312, and in in February of of, uh, 313, he uh, signed the Edict of Milan, which made Christianity the official religion of Rome, the entire emperor. So let me explain how this happened. Constantine, he was basically the underdog to become the next emperor, the next Caesar. He, they, they weren't really called Caesars anymore, but he was going to become the next emperor. But he wasn't going to be. He was going to be this Maxentius guy. And during his battle with Maxentius, he had a vision. And in this vision, he saw a, uh, the first two letters of Jesus. It's Cairo in Latin, and it doesn't really matter. He thought it was Jesus, okay? And uh, he said, well, in this vision, so basically I need to become a Christian, And if I become a Christian, then God's going to make me the emperor. So he went out and conquered these people and killed a bunch of people. And and so he said, hey, killed a bunch of people. Maybe I'll be a Christian now. So he decides, okay, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to follow through with this. So he decides to make Christianity the religion of the entire emperor. So the question is, was he really converted? Was he really a Christian? Because some people in the church are like, oh yeah, this was the greatest thing ever that Constantine changed the Roman emperor from this godless, pagan, Zeus-worshipping empire to a Christian empire. That was a good thing. And then other people say, well, it was 
it was not a good thing. We're going we're gonna to really study that today. We're going to kind of figure it out. But the question is, was he really a Christian? And after looking into it, I, I think probably I, I, there's some doubt. I mean, he like murdered people and stuff. And he like had it. But all the politicians did in that day. And, and there was some real change in his life. And he really did get baptized. And he really did um, plug in a lot of uh, Christian morality and virtues and and he really seemed like he he understood some things towards the end of his life so i'm gonna let you decide you guys go study constantine and you can decide but we're gonna see he did he did some weird things too but i want you to think about the world in 313 christians have spent 213 years being persecuted being hunted down being killed being a Christian meant suffering. And we saw that the church was exploding in growth. The church was doing wonderful. Despite the fact that it was illegal to be Christians, the Christian community and population and the church was growing and doing just fine, keeping their doctrine right, getting together. We, they didn't have nice buildings to meet in, but they were doing great spiritually. Jesus even said in that time, I have nothing bad to say to you, just, just be faithful. Now, in 313, imagine the feeling that all the people had when, when they're so excited that Constantine, this guy who says, I'm a Christian now, when he gets into the white, the, when he gets into the throne. Oh, our guy's finally in the White House. This is going to be great. All the Christians are going to ha- have this excitement and and joy. In fact, the reason why Constantine beat Maxentius is because he said, hey, I'm a Christian, so hundreds of thousands of young Christian men joined his army and said, hey, we'll join with you. And Constantine's like, oh, that was easy. Hmm, there may be an untapped resource of power and influence just by saying, I'm a Christian. Very interesting for us to study. Um, one interesting thing about Constantine, he sent his mom down to Israel to tell everyone where Jesus was born and to tell everyone where the crucifixion happened and to tell everyone where Jesus' tomb was. And so you go down to Israel today and they have all these Constantine-era churches and, and traditional sites of all these different events and none of them are really where they happened because his mom was just making stuff up. And so there's this place, even today, and I just read on the news, they're, they're doing this like $35 million facelift of the, of the church of the, where they think the tomb of Jesus was. And it's ridiculous because it's, it's like a, a hole in the ground. It's not where Jesus was buried. The real place is in a garden just right outside Golgotha. Anyway, the garden tomb, go there. It's awesome in Israel. Um, yeah, the traditional sites don't really believe what they say. Constantine's mom just went and... Anyway, so this is good news when Constantine becomes the emperor, right? I mean, we finally got our guy in power. But what this is, is this is the marriage of church and state. This is when Christians came into power. When Christians got power. What happened here? We don't know 
if, if we got in power in this country, we don't know if it would change the country. But I do know it would change the church. Because we see it here. The church went into power, and the church changed. Satan spent 200 years trying to kill the church. And then he said, if you can't beat them, join them. And that's what happened when the church married the government, when the church came into power. If Jesus sees Satan in your church, he's coming with a sword. He doesn't want Satan in his church. He certainly doesn't want Satan wearing a wedding ring of his church. Jesus is pretty jealous over us. Did you know that? He's very passionate. If he sees you're wearing someone else's wedding ring, he's going to come with a, a sword and chop that finger off. Look at what happens. These things, says he, who has the sharp two-edged sword. A sharp sword, huh? Yeah, a sword is able to cut, it's able to separate, and we know that this is referring to what? The word of God. In Hebrews 4.12, you guys know, says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus is saying, I'm going to cut through your perverted union, your unacceptable marriage. I'm going to cut it off. I, I'm willing and able to do that through my word. My word is going to show you how you messed up. I'm going to bring my word to you. You thought you had a good plan to change things up in the world. You thought ending the persecution was a good idea. But my word is going to teach you that you are wrong. And I'll show you why. I'll tell you why. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now I do have a picture of Satan's throne, which is kind of remarkable. So this is the actual throne. It's called the Great Altar in Pergamon. It's considered one of the greatest surviving monuments from all of antiquity. It's now located in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, Germany. The altar is thought by many scholars to be the throne of Satan, referred to by John. So this is a throne that was there, and it's kind of like steps, and, and they would worship a god on top of it. But what does it really represent? What is Jesus saying here that he knows that they dwell where Satan's throne is? Well, some people said, well, this is the throne of Zeus, where Zeus came in, and Satan really likes that false religious, that, that cult-type idea. Some people think, well, it represents Roman society and how society itself was just so perverted and wanted to do its own thing. Some people think, well, it's the Babylonian religion, that ancient religion of just trying to rebel against God at every step, and maybe it's that. And some people think, well, it's just all of political power mixed together and everything that's anti-God just mix it all together. Well, I don't think personally that Satan cares how he messes up the world. He's an equal opportunity destroyer of things. And he is just there to give us an option of something besides Jesus. Anything you want. You could have anything. You want it to be political power. You want it to be cultish. You want it to be uh, like Roman society, what, what people think is popular, your music, your pop stuff. 
Anything you want that's not Jesus and submitting to God, anything that can rebel against God, Satan's there for you and he's got an option. And it's all, but it all looks the same from Jesus' eyes. It's all a throne where Satan is ruling people's lives and destroying people's lives. And Jesus says, and you, have hold, er, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Okay, so we have the one good thing he says about this church, you identify with me. You have a fish on your car. You have a, a Christian tattoo. You are vocal about your support of me. You like to have banners hanging up. You like to put signs in your yard about how much you support me. Interesting. That's the one good thing he says about them. He says, yeah, it's fine for you to be vocal about loving me and supporting me. But we got some real problems coming up. And he says that, uh, that Antipas was this guy that, that, that showed them what the good part is or what they should choose to do. And Tertullian, the church historian, he said that Antipas was a dentist and that he wouldn't worship the false gods here in Pergamos. That one day they were having a, a day of worshiping false gods and, and Antipas was like, no, I want no part of this. I worship Jesus and Jesus alone. And so they had a big brass bull or cow. And they put him in the brass cow and they put a fire underneath the brass cow and he died. I could make a joke there, but I will refrain. <laughs> he would not give in to their idolatry. He wouldn't give in. He knew that he lived where Satan was, but he wouldn't compromise, and he died. And Jesus is saying, that's what you should have done. Antipas had it figured out. Loving me is more important than your life continuing. Being faithful to me is more important than you being comfortable. You may have to live with some bull. Ah, <laughs> oh, Anyway. Couldn't resist. It was just I couldn't couldn't resist. It was just right there, and I just never mind. Oh, so Jesus is saying, you guys, Antipas had it figured out. He didn't compromise, and it cost him his life. Yes, but that's what following me is. You choose me, and you let go of the world. The world is going to kill you and torture you, and it's going to be bad for you in this world. But that's what it is. That's the deal. Are you down with that? Well, many in the church were not. That's the problem with this church is they were like, I'm tired of suffering. I'm tired of having a rough life. I'm ready to take it easy. So let's set up a system of government that helps me to be happy and to be comfortable. Verse 14, Jesus says, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So Balaam, who is this Balaam guy? Jesus says they have this same thing going on. Balaam was a crazy prophet. He's actually a Gentile prophet. From the book of Numbers, you can read about him. And what happened is he... 
he was, you know, prophesying, doing his prophet thing, whatever. And this enemy of Israel who was in the land, one of the Moabite kings, Balak, he said, hey, hey, come here. You look, you're like one of my people. Let's, how can I, let's curse Israel because I hate them. I live here. I don't want them to live here. I hate them. I want them to be destroyed. So let's curse them. And Balak is like, well, I shouldn't do that. And Balak's like, let me give you some money. And he's like, okay, let's do it. So he's on his way to go meet with Balak and he's riding his donkey, right? You remember this? And God's like, I'm going to kill you. So he sends an uh, angel with a sword, and the donkey sees the angel, and he's invisible to Balaam. And the donkey stops and crushes Balaam's leg up against a wall that he was riding by. And Balaam's like, you idiot donkey, what are you doing? And he gets out, and he starts beating his donkey. And his donkey's like, hey, haven't I always been a good donkey to you? And Balaam, without missing a beat, says, you're an idiot of a donkey, I hate you. He doesn't realize there's a donkey speaking to him. He just, this is how <laughs> imperceptible of spiritual things Balaam is. He doesn't realize that his donkey is saving his life. So anyway, Balaam goes, he meets with Balak, he makes this agreement. Balak wants the people gone, but that wasn't happening. So uh, ba Balaam tried to curse. He went up in the mountain and he tries to curse the people. He says, okay, here we go. We made an agreement, Balak. I'm going to take your money. I'm going to curse the people. But up on this mountain, he looked down at the people of Israel, and his heart changed. And it's really interesting because as he would have been on the top of the mountain looking down at the camp, the way that their camp was set up was very, very specific. God said you had the tabernacle in the middle, and then you had these three, Judah and a couple other tribes here, and a couple tri three tribes here, three tribes here, and three tribes here. But the tribes down here, and you look at the numbers, and the tribes here were much, much bigger, so their line would have extended longer. And you look that the whole thing would have looked like a cross from his perspective, what he was looking at. And so his heart melts and has changed. I don't know if it's because he sees a cross, but it's symbolic for us. That the people of Israel are totally idiots here. They have just committed adultery spiritually. They have just been worshiping idols. And Balaam is like, yeah, they deserve to be cursed. But he looks down on them from up high, from God's perspective, and what does he see? He just sees this cross. It's like the church. The church is messed up. There's a lot of broken, messed up people in the church. But when you look at them through God's perspective, you just see the cross. You just see that their messed upness has been paid for. You see that Jesus, and so Balaam, he changes and he tries to curse them, but he can't. Only blessings come out. He's like, oh, those silly children of God, let them be blessed, you know? And Balak is like, what am I paying you for? You're supposed to curse them. And Balaam's like, I, I can't do this. I can't curse them. But I know how you can get God to curse them. I know how you can get your, your purposes accomplished. And so Balak's like, well, what is it? And Balaam says, Dress up some of your Moabite women, real sexy-like, and get the men of Israel to fall in love with them. And as they get relationships, and as they connect with them, and as they intermarry them, say, oh, what makes me so passionate is that I'm really into these gods, and bring those gods into the bedroom, bring those gods into their daily lives, and cause the men to commit idolatry 
through these relationships that should not happen. God said, do not marry anyone from that land because he knew that this type of thing would happen. So this is an unacceptable marriage, a perverted wedding. It's a stumbling block and spiritual adultery because the men, God's men, got passionate about something besides God. They got passionate about something besides God. It was these women. They were really passionate. This is fun. This is exciting. And man, we could, we don't have to go to war and kill all these people and kick them out of our land. We could just marry them. And I'm passionate about this plan that I have. What is our church passionate about? What is the church in America passionate about? What are you passionate about? What are we connected to? Here's how it works. You only get a certain amount of passion each day. Let's say it's a dollar. And you can spend all that dollar on whatever you want, and that's your passion for the day. But you run out. You, you only have a certain amount each day. And you could spend the whole thing on Jesus, or you can reserve a certain amount for Jesus and reserve a certain amount for other things, like politics. The church here got really patriotic for the next 300 years, 500 years in Rome. They would sing, God bless Rome, land of the Holy Roman Empire. Why do we know the tune of that song? Because the church in America has gotten really politically passionate over the past couple hundred years. Politics is like the women of the Moabite church. For the church, excuse me. The, women, the Moabite women for the church. When the church decides that it wants to invest its passion in the political game, its passion for Jesus always suffers. Who are you supposed to spend your dollar on? Jesus said, just give me your heart right? Your whole heart, all your passion. I want it all. I deserve it all. Let's say you go on a trip, Nathan, you go on a business trip. You come home and your wife is like, hey, honey, how faithful to me were you on this trip? And you're like, oh, more or less. How happy would she be about that answer? Not very happy at all. In our marriages, in our relationships, Faithfulness is not an option. You, you can't, 80% faithful is terrible. 90% faithful is even worse. 99% faithful is unacceptable to us. That's the standard you hold each other to, right? When you're married. But yet we think we can spend some of our passion other places besides Jesus Christ. You only get a dollar a day. Don't spend 10% of it on Fox News. I'm not saying don't vote or don't be involved, but I am saying we should not get into bed with it. We should not daydream about how nice it would be if blank won the election. You shouldn't. Or if blank was assassinated. We should not think about those things. 
We cannot let our hope, our passion, be in the political process. When we let politics consume our minds, Jesus feels like he's being cheated on. That is the absolute truth. It is spiritual adultery because it's passion. He's, he wants our heart. Now, if you can be in politics and not be passionate about it, you're weird. <laughs> because it is almost virtually impossible to choose one side and not, by default, think the other side are idiots or think the other side is wrong or insult them in your heart. Is that what Jesus has for us? The previous church of Smyrna didn't have any of these problems because they were hated, disconnected from the world, and had no power. The politics was nothing. For, I mean, it was just everyone hated them and was trying to kill them. They couldn't do anything to stop it. And guess what? They were super powerful. People were turning to Jesus like all over the place because the church is what was powered by God. They were just pilgrims and travelers. They were not interested in being rich or influential. Just staying alive and sharing the gospel is all they could do. That's it. And Jesus loved it, he said. That was the best church, he said. As soon as the church joined with the state, it lost much more than it ever gained. Do you know that they actually thought <laughs> that the millennium had come in 313? The church went around teaching. Most of the pastors were like, well, I guess we're in the millennium because everything is perfect. That's what they thought. But Balaam, he knew how to deceive the people, how to get the people to be cursed and lose their effectiveness. God did end up cursing the people because of their adultery with the Moabite women. Balaam knew that the people would not just go worship idols unless they fell in love with something else and the idols just came with it. And that's the problem with politics. I understand there's right and wrong issues. I got no problem with that. Abortion, horrible. Make your votes based on that. But when you get super passionate about the political process, idolatry just comes with it. It comes in the back door. And you can't control it. Your heart's already sold out for the cause. So you have to accept it. They, Balaam knew that if the guys just fell in love with these Moabite women, that their heart, they would follow their hearts right into the sins that they grew up hating. They all grew up hating, knowing idolatry was wrong. So how did they end up doing it their whole life? Because they followed their hearts. What they were passionate about was not God alone. They got passionate about other things. Now, verse 15, Jesus says, Thus you also have the, uh, those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We talked about this last week, that the Nicolaitans mean people who, who dominate other people, people who want to be the boss, okay? When the church joined with the government, it gained a lot of power. And a lot of positions of great influence and power opened up immediately. In fact, many of the priests of the pagans just transferred and became priests in the church. How does that work? Do they know anything about the Bible? No, but the way Constantine did it, they just 
oh, we're not pagan anymore. We're all Christian. And the pagan priests are like, well, I don't know how to worship Jesus. I only know how to worship Zeus. And to worship him, we cut down a tree and light it up and we call it Christmas. And so that's what they did. They just transferred everything from pagan and put Christian labels on everything. This was not a revival, though. This wasn't a true revival. There wasn't more people getting saved. There was less. There was more people identifying with being Christians, but there was a whole lot less real work of God. And this, this takes us from the pinnacle of the church down to where the church becomes nearly meaningless. You only had a few sparse places where people were actually teaching the word of God and following it through the next 1,500 years of the dark ages of the church. Very interesting. Uh, these positions evolved over time to people calling themselves the boss or the daddy of them all or pope, which means papa or dad or boss. And it's a doctrine of Nicolaitans, which Jesus says, I hate. Nicolaitans, again, were those who conquered the people. They wanted to rule over people. They wanted to dominate their lives, tell them what to do and how to live, and Jesus hates this. Like we studied in Ephesus, Paul said, Paul said, real pastors are only a helper of your joy. He said in Ephesians, I, uh, we, don't, we have no interest in bossing you around. We're only a helper of your joy. The church is supposed to be a blessing and show leadership, not be a burden and be hypocritical, which is what the church is going to turn into for the next 1,500 years. It's ridiculous. Jesus hates this, and I don't think his opinion has changed even until today. He hates that. So verse 16, he says, you got to repent. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus, again, shows us the way out, like he's done in all of the problems of the church so far, and he says, repent, turn back to him. Agree with him and turn off Fox News and KOA or CSNBC. Turn them off. Stop it. Repent. Shut off the flow of media into your heart. I thought it was just going into my head. Nope. It's going into your heart. Or he will fight with them, Jesus says. You're going to have conflict in your heart because there's going to be a sword and it's going to be hurt when Jesus is saying, that's not biblical. Why are you voting for him when he does this? And you're not going to be okay in your heart. That's the people who have decided to live with this compromise. He will confront them with his word. He's going he's, he's gonna to confront anyone who decides, oh, I, I can be passionate about two things. Jesus is going to say, no, and my word will rebuke you. You can't be passionate about two things. You can only do it with one. Can you split a dollar bill? No. Who would want to? That's a great question. You can't, you can't go to a change or uh, ask someone for change for the dollar of your passion. It's only a dollar bill every day. If you, if you rip it up, it's, it's worthless. So when we, become this when we get this compromise going in our hearts, where we have our heart in two different places, we become uncomfortable reading the word of God. We squirm when the word of God is taught in power and with truth. And you're either going to stop reading the Bible and go to a seeker-friendly church that doesn't teach the whole Bible, 
or you'll repent in brokenness. That's the only two choices. I've experienced in my life what adultery feels like. And it hurts. And I know that the only way to fix its brokenness is through total humility and brokenness. That's the only thing that works. Repentance, real repentance. Never trying to justify what happened. Does that ever work? No, it doesn't. We can't say, it's okay for us to be super involved with politics. We can't do that. We have to repent and be fully into Jesus, fully committed that if he wants this country to go down in flames and us to start being tortured and burned, we're okay with that as long as we're following him. Or would you deny Christ? If you are on that camp, there's a lot of churches in town that are with you. A sword has two sides. So does the word. There's the law and grace. And Jesus is using good at using both when he needs to. When you're sinning, when you need something strong, he uses the law and says, man, this does not honor God, what you're doing, what your heart, what's going on in your heart. And then when you're broken about your sin, when you're convicted of your sin, when you're worried and concerned about the fact that you are a sinner, he's got grace. And that's a healing side. It's a wonderful side. Look now at verse 17. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. When Jesus' people repent and choose to fill their lives with nothing but Jesus, shut off the flow of media into their hearts, Jesus says, guess what? You find, when you do that, some hidden manna. Some, what, what is hidden manna? In the Ark of the Covenant, there was a few things that Moses put in it when he made it. One of them was a pot of manna. The manna that God had fed the people with. They saved some in a pot. And they hid it inside the covenant, inside the Ark of the Covenant. You might not know what life is like without your addictions and idolatry, and it might even be scary to think of throwing things away or canceling subscriptions, but Jesus is going to make it worth it for you. Go to the well that doesn't run dry. The word of Jesus every day has to be our only input. That's what we need to input. What is this hidden manna? Where was the manna hidden? It was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant, which the Ark of the Covenant is like God's throne. So instead of going to the throne of Satan, which is everything else except God, everything, you could call it anything, everything that's in rebellion against God, his throne has hidden manna. Something that supernaturally sustains us and blesses us and nourishes us. When we only live in God's presence and when we abide there and we stay there, we can only be there when there's blood covering the mercy seat. So if you don't know, at the Ark of the Covenant, where this hidden man is, the priests would come in every year and they would, slit, they would uh, kill a lamb and they would take his blood and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat or the top, the throne, and God's presence would be right there as they're sprinkling this blood on, and that's what made them able to enter into his presence. 
Well, that all stopped when Jesus died because his blood spiritually did the same thing. It cleanses God's throne and gives us access into God's throne. It cleanses us so that we can enter into his throne and worship him and have fellowship with him. And he says, when you do that, when you get all close to me like that, when you believe in the blood of Jesus and the blood's all over you, you have access to spiritual nourishment. You have access to the manna that's hidden from everyone else in the world. But if you come to just me, I will bless you. I will take care of you. You don't need to know what's going on in the political circles. You just need me. That's what he's saying. So why do we think, seek anything from anyone else? Man cannot help us. Systems cannot save us. Governments do not help anything for the church. Only Jesus does. His love is poured out for us like blood. Other men never do such a thing. All the politicians would never give their blood for you. That's weird, right? Only Jesus gives his entire life for you. Their mistake is joining with the world's system. Jesus already has a system. Our political system is terrible, right? Better than China, but terrible. But our system is not the solution. And the solution isn't to find a better system. There's already a different system called Jesus' system where you come and pray to him and he gives you whatever you need. Isn't that better than representative government? Just come to Jesus and he gives you it all, whatever you need. To do good works is provided through him. And it worked fine for the past 200 years of their persecution. So why did they feel the need to change it? Why did they feel like they were tired of the persecution? It was a heart issue. They had strayed from Jesus again. And they needed to repent to come back to him. They fell in love with the idea of a Christian government. They fell in love with the idea of not being persecuted. And those two ideas are adultery. Jesus says, don't love those ideas, love me. If you love me, you might be persecuted, but at least you love me. If you love the idea of a Christian government or the idea of no persecution, you're committing adultery. You can't love anything but Jesus. We only get to love one, God. And the church has become stagnant for basically the next thousand years because of this. A few bright spots and a lot of struggles. It's crazy. Now look what Jesus says. And I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which no, now, no one knows except him who re- receives it. Uh, this might have been an allusion to uh, conquerors and public games when you won a game. Uh, they were, uh, you were given this white stone with your name inscribed on it, which was kind of like a badge that entitled you to uh, honor and stuff in that. In there. So it's kind of like the, the Lombardi trophy was a white stone. They were called tesserae in the Romans. But the cool thing is that these white stones also, this is what I think more of the meaning is, they were given to a good witness. In other words, if you were called to testify at a court case, If you did a good job, the jury would hand you a white stone. If they thought you were trustworthy, if they thought you were believable, if they thought you were reliable, they gave you a white stone. 
If they thought you were not reliable, untrustworthy, they would give you a black stone, which is where we get the term being blackballed. You guys know what being blackballed is? It's when no one uh, will give you an opportunity to speak or, or when they, you get shut out of being a job because you're blackballed or, or, or because you, or you're at a job and, and they won't give you the good leads or, or they do things to try to get you to fail. That's because they felt like you were untrustworthy. You got blackballed with your name on it. There's a black ball with your name on it. When we let our passion be Jesus and not a political party, just Jesus, we won't be blackballed by any specific group based on their political ideas. So what we're basically learning here is Jesus saying, you want to be effective in ministering to the world and witnessing to this world? You can't do it through politics. It must be only passion for me. That's the only way you'll gain effectiveness, that they will give you a white stone, that you won't be blackballed with them. If you say, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat, and that's my big thing, and Jesus, instantly half of the population has blackballed you. You've lost the ability to minister to half the people. And you're like, well, good. They should go to hell. I thought Jesus said, love everybody. Is, isn't that not the part of the point of the church? I'm not saying there doesn't need to be change. I'm not saying we don't stand up for what's right. But I am saying your passion is the problem. What are you passionate about? Are we committing adultery? Are we committing spiritual adultery? Jesus died for them but you might not reach out to them if you're too passionate about your thing, your party, your, what are you passionate about? If you're cheating on Jesus, there's always the thing that matters in addition to doing his will. But if you overcome, Jesus says, then Jesus will give you real influenceful people. He'll give you the white stone. You don't have to worry about being blackballed when you just overcome and say, hey, I'm just here for Jesus. All I care about is Jesus. Have you been forgiven by Jesus? Have you been forgiven by Jesus? Amen. Let's all get forgiven by Jesus. We'll take care of everything as the Holy Spirit provides. Holy Spirit can change it all. Sell out for Jesus. And then you will be influential into this world. You will. The, the reason why there's no real change happening in America with the church is because the church is not sold out for Jesus. They're not praying. They're protesting we got to pray and stop protesting. And then it says he will give you a special name. It says he gives a name to them written on the stone that no one knows except that. It's, like, it's speaking of intimacy. He will give you a special thoughts and love. It's kind of like having a pet name that Jesus gives us. It, he will make you effective and powerful if you overcome and abide with him alone. And it's going to be something very special between you and him. He's going to say, God knows I'm weak. God knows I can't change the world. God knows I can't make political influence, but he knows me. And he's going to give me what I can do, and he's going to provide for me 
by his hidden manna and his Holy Spirit everything that I need. When you don't cheat on him, there's amazing benefits and blessings. There's an intimate relationship with him. But if you cheat on him, you walk into the house, hey, what were you doing this weekend? Well, I was cheating on you. Do you think there's going to be happiness in that home? Do you think there's going to be joy in that home? Do you think there's going to be pet names? Oh, Snookums. Pookie. Boys will be boys. No, there's going to be some punches thrown. There's going to be some bullet holes in the floor, right? Or the windows, depending on where you're aiming. It's going to be bad, and the intimacy is not going to be there. And we wonder why we feel like going to church is, is a burden, or we feel like worshiping Jesus, or spending time with Jesus is a, a bore. We feel like we're always condemned. We've been cheating on him. He's like, this is unacceptable for you to be that passionate about something besides me. No, not okay. I demand faithfulness. I, me and me alone is all that can, your heart has room for. Jesus shows us exactly how this works. When he was on the world and he was choosing his disciples, who did he pick? Matthew, the tax collector, the government supporter, the Democrat, sold out for the cause of the Roman government, and he picked Simon the Zealot, the anti-government right-wing militant Republican, sold out for the cause of the Republicans. And what did Jesus say to both of them? that changed everything for them. He said, you follow me. You're done with your cause. You're done with your politics. You're done. And now you two are bunk bed mates. You guys get one sleeping bag. I'm tying you together with duct tape. That's why I do it. Well, no. I... It would be a good idea if you had boys that didn't get along. <laughs> They join together because they learn that it's better to love and be loved by Jesus than anything else they had going on. Why do we still want to be tax collectors? And why do we still want to be zealots? Government, passionate people. We have to stop as a church, the whole church. We need to just follow Jesus. We need to be so busy caring for the poor and caring for the, the people who are hurting and that, that we, can't, we don't have time. I don't have time to watch Fox News. Every time I do, I get angry anyway. I mostly agree with stuff they say, but when I, the problem isn't what they're saying. The problem isn't them. The problem is me and my idolatrous heart can't handle that. I can only handle Jesus. I can only come and be made right at Jesus' feet. What really connected them together, Matthew and Simon the Zealot, is, that they, is when they had a meal together, right? And I'm not talking about the Last Supper. I'm not talking about in and, out, in and Out or Five Guys. They ate the hidden manna together. They found out by experience that only Jesus really satisfies in their hearts, in their souls. The, thing they, the things they thought were so important that they were watching on Fox or listening to Rush, they just faded away when compared to the kingdom of God right in front of them. 
When they're eating of the hidden manna, they were fine with the politics of this world. And some people are like, how can you not be just irate, angry about what's going on in this world? How can you have joy? How can you not be so upset about what's going on in this world? Easy. Look at Jesus. Is he upset? No, he's ruling on the throne. Just fine. He's letting his church minister to people, love people. And when your eyes are on him, you're satisfied, and you're going to have the joy of the Lord. How can you have the joy of the Lord and be in politics? You can't. <sighs> it's nearly impossible to be passionate about one side without insulting the other side. It's almost impossible to be passionate about anything and not insult someone who's not as passionate about it as you are. You're, you're passionate about anything. And when someone's not as passionate with you about you, about fishing or whatever you got going on, you're like, Psh. Right? Jesus wants us all to eat at the same table. He doesn't have a red side and a blue side. And don't tell me that we won't be used in our country if we don't get involved in politics. God's kingdom is about the least being the greatest, right? About the servants being seen as the greatest in the kingdom, the best. I can do that just fine no matter what state the government is in. I can serve people and love people if we become conquered by North Korea. I can still do that. Doesn't matter. Our kingdom is greater and higher than theirs because in this world we serve and love and suffer. In fact, it might be easier to take the humble road when more people oppose us, when it's more difficult. It might be easier to actually be successful in our relationship with Jesus, being humble, walking with him, suffering, giving away our lives, not caring about our possessions, when we're actually being persecuted. So, crazy study this week. Pergamos is very convicting. I feel like I'm passionate about many things that I need to stop being passionate about. How about you? Well, let's all stand. We're going to sing one more song, and we're going to take communion, eat of some hidden manna. Father, we want to pray and we want to seek you and you alone. Lord, this time is not about um, us and it's not about our views and it's not about us changing the world. This is about you and what you've done for us. It's not about how we failed you. It's about how you have not failed us. It's not about how great we've done. It's about how good you are. Lord, our attention is on you, our hearts Repent from all the different passions that we've had, all the different Moabite women named Rush and Hannity that we've committed spiritual adultery with. Lord, forgive us. Lord, we're broken, but we don't make excuses. We, we think about other things far too much. And prayer so often becomes the last thing that we do. And Lord, we want to repent of that. We want to put our hope only in you. 
and trust only you, Jesus. Because you are truly more beautiful than all those things. And your hidden manna is more satisfying than anything this world has. And we long to be effective and have that white stone given to us. We long for the intimacy of having a name that only you and we know and a right, wonderful relationship with you, Lord. Lord, help us to just have the joy of knowing that we're right with you, that we only love you, and that you have been so good to us. And if anyone in here has never once turned to the Lord and asked for forgiveness, now is the time to just cry out to him and say, forgive me. You were my substitute on the cross. That should have been me up there. My sin is wrong and you are right. God, you're holy and Jesus offers to make you holy right now. So just call out to him with all your heart.